To celebrate the 118th anniversary of Ayn Rand's birth, we wanted to focus on Ayn Rand's distinctively value-centered approach to philosophy and to living life. As Ayn Rand's longtime student and in her final years, close friend, my guest today, Dr. Harry Binswanger, saw firsthand how Ayn Rand integrated passionate valuing and austere reason. Welcome to New Ideal Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. My name is Aaron Smith. I'm a fellow at ARI. And uh, joining me today is Dr. Harry Binswanger. Welcome, Harry. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, our topic today is Ayn Rand's distinctively value-centered approach to philosophy and to life. And what is meant by a value-centered approach to philosophy? And what does this have to do with the way Ayn Rand holds philosophy or the way she thinks about philosophy in general? Her view of philosophy in general is in stark contrast to contemporary academic philosophy. It's in the same tradition as the great philosophers in history. It's a guide to living. It's a guide to life. It's a normative field. That is, it's a field that makes value judgments. And uh, she had two areas that she identified two areas in philosophy that were particularly crucial to get guidance in. One is epistemology, the theory of knowledge, to know how you determine what is true. And the other is ethics, the study of good and evil, to know what to do about it when you discover something is true. But one thing that's, that's fairly unique about her is the tight integration of those two. She did not make a dichotomy between fact and value, between truth and goodness. She saw both as a recognition of reality. And her, one of her great accomplishments, probably her greatest, was her validation of a standard of morality based upon uh, the facts of reality. And can, can you say something about like, why is that, why has that been, um, first of all, why is it an achievement and why has it been historically a problem? Some kind of separation or some kind of a split between fact and values. I seem to remember her saying someplace that that issue has sort of like the is ought kind of problem that that has sort of wreaked havoc in philosophy and in people's lives. Could you say a bit about that and then why it's such an achievement yeah. to yeah. see that this is a false alternative or there's something wrong with it? Before I came on, I went to chat GBT and put in, how do you prove normative statements? And I can't read you the full answer, but it said you can't prove them they are not objective, they are subjective, they are an expression of preferences and vary from individual to individual and culture to culture. Now that's wrong, but that's the, you know, chat GPT is the accumulated quote wisdom quote of the web of the internet. And uh, unfortunately it mirrors what has been the, majority view or almost a monopoly view in philosophy and in common living for the last two or 300 years, that you can't prove an ethics, that reason has nothing to say about ultimate values. So it was a great achievement because 
since David Hume, it's been declared absolutely impossible. David Hume claimed to be able to prove that you could not rationally derive an ethics. His proof didn't go through, but that's not widely recognized. And so where does the rubber meet the road here? Because if it's so, so there's, you can't prove uh, that values are objective or you can't prove an objective morality that's inherently subjective. Why does that, Ayn Rand certainly disagrees with that, but why does that push us in a bad direction? What's the harm? Well, if there's no objective way of deciding between you want to live and I want to kill you, well, like my desire to kill you is good for me because I want it, and your desire to live is good for you because you want it, and just the, you know, people conflict. Uh, take anything you want. Religion, living by Christ's ethics is good, or living by Christ's ethics is evil, just means hurrah for Christ's ethics or boo to Christ's ethics. So it just destroys the whole field. It means okay. that rather than ethics telling you what to do, it says, go with your feelings. Whatever you feel like doing, that's all there is. It doesn't really even tell you that. It says nothing. It says, it's up to you. Yeah. So, the, so it's it, a destruction of morality. And you also would have no way then of objectively defending any kind of value or any kind of value approach or one's own life uh, when, when the chips came down, in effect. Yeah, it's all, uh, what is the view today? That it's all cultural. Well, I was brought up to think that it's important to do X, you know, to be polite or to um, give to the poor or whatever it is. I was brought up that way. That's what our culture holds. Uh, other cultures, like the Greek culture, charity is not a particular virtue in the Greek culture. Well, that's just their culture. So cultural relativism is just the extension of individual subjectivism because you can't, they claim, prove an ethics. But Ayn Rand did. You so what was, her, what was her attitude to values then? I mean, what was her approach to, why does she think values well, can be objective? Like what would deeper, be, yeah. She asked a deeper question than any preceding uh, thinker on this view. Preceding thinkers, even Aristotle, who's the best, asked, well, what values should men pursue? What should they go after? What kind of life is the good life? And then they looked around at what they could see about different life choices that people made and tried to pick the best one. She actually began that way too. And then you can see in her notes at a certain point, she says, in effect, wait, the first question is what are values and why does man need them? And that's the question that she raised that no one else had raised. What are values and why does man need them? She found that the concept of value meant that which one acts to gain and or keep as a first cut at what it means. And that that concept had certain presuppositions in earlier concepts, such as it presupposes an entity capable of acting. 
you can't say a stone has values, it can't do anything. It presupposes an entity capable of acting in the face of an alternative. If the results for the entity are the same, there's no value to it for its action. So like uh, a, a volcano blows up, you could look upon that as something it does, but it doesn't face any alternative. It can't be helped or hurt by what happens uh, from that eruption. So she realized that the basic alternative that gives rise to values is the alternative of life or death. It's only to a living organism, she said, that things can be good or evil. So ethics is based upon the fact that you have to do something and you have to do something in a certain way to obtain certain things to stay alive. So that is the fact of reality that gives rise to all the value concepts, good and bad, success and failure, goal achievement, goal frustration, even the psychological concepts like joy and suffering, pleasure and pain, are the stand-ins in consciousness for the alternative of survival versus death. Pain is a warning sign you're on the wrong course. You're leading to death. Pleasure is, this is good for you. Now it's not, it's, it's only a start because you can't have a built-in mechanism to tell you, oh, buy Microsoft stock when it drops below 100, even if that turns out to be good for you. So uh, there's not a guidance suitable for a rational being in the sensations of pleasure and pain. But I think, she didn't say this, but I think if you didn't have, if you were born without the capacity to feel bodily sensations of pleasure and pain, you couldn't develop any values. Nothing would matter to you. You couldn't but orient. You have those sensations as a biological adaptation to surviving. So I can go on, but I should stop and give you a chance to say something. Yeah. Um, so what you're saying is, you know, someone like Aristotle looked around and found uh, what are the admirable characters? What are the admirable people? And what are their admirable characteristics, and how do we um, how do we build those into our character uh, and to live a good life? But then you're saying that uh, what Ayn Rand did was ask a, a deeper question or a prior question, in effect, uh, is what are values and why do we need them? And that led her on the path to uh, a validation, in effect, because once you start asking a lot of those kinds of questions and say, "Yeah, well, well what are values? Well, the things that we pursue, we try to hang on to, to get, to obtain. Why do we need to do any of that?" Well, because we face this alternative between life and death, and it really matters whether you get this or don't get that. And so it it then oriented her to a life-based morality versus it's it's some other world and there are commands or it's the society has expectations or it's your glands or your feelings. It's no, it's the requirements of life and what you need to do to obtain them, maintain them and advance your life. And so it's like, so, so you think that's the factual basis on which you're getting the normative or the, or the guidance uh, that her philosophy is offering. And it certainly would explain why. I mean, she seemed to face, if you want, I mean, watch her in, in an interview, watch her in a Q&A, and she takes 
every issue like there's there's a life and death significance to it it like it, it matters deeply and there's a way in which you could tie basically any issue back to the right. issue of it's a pro-life it's an anti-life it's harmful it's helpful it's it hurts you it helps it helps right. you right and, and things uh that are more um human than just barely physical survival are required for a human being to survive for instance art people say well why is, I got a question just the other day, how is good art something that fits in with the scheme that life is the premise behind all values? Well, the answer to that, which Ayn Rand discovered is that art is a necessity of psychological health and your psychological health is a necessity of your physical survival. People who are terminally depressed do not take the actions that their survival requires. Now, maybe somebody else will keep them alive, but they're not going to go work, to work and earn a living. They're not going to be prepared to do what's all the things that are required to live life to the fullest. So even things like art, which is at the farthest extremity from food in the mouth, is crucially important because you are a living organism faced with the alternative of life or death. If you weren't, art wouldn't have any particular interest for you. So uh, everything, let, let me just uh, get to the uh, climax. If, if life is the premise or death is the premise. And on a morality of life, which is her morality, she says, all that which is proper to the life of a rational being is the good. All that which destroys it is the evil. So the standard of moral judgment, the standard of moral, moral value is the life of man as a rational being. And she has an explanation of why it's that. Why is it qua rational being that we're looking at? But let me not get into that at this moment. Yeah, and I think it's it, it's enormously clarifying to have a standard. It's one thing to have a model, like what would Jesus do? Or <laughs> I don't think it's a good model, but what would Jesus do? Or what would Howard Rourke do? It's great to have a model, an image, um, some to kind of look up to. But it's another thing to have a standard, some a yardstick that you can refer back to, uh, to think is because when you ask the question about art, I mean, art is a complicated issue. Exactly how art relates to life and what you get out of art, uh, there's a lot to say about that. But if if one is asked that question, like how does art relate to human life? The question, what should go on in the mind is, well, how does it relate to my life? What do I get out of it? Does it bring a value to me? Um, it, you know, it's, and it's it, because it says, well, it should have, if it's good, it should have some bearing on my life. It should bring me pleasure. It should bring me joy. Or maybe I hate it. <laughs> there's some kind of value response. And there's some sort of relationship to my life. Uh, you know, when, when I used to, people used to ask that question about the relation. People, I mean, Ayn Rand thinks that you need art. And, and a lot of people, that's a strange thing to say. Uh, and in part, it might be, and we, we don't want to get totally into the issue of art, but um, partly because art doesn't play a, a big role in people's life. They don't really experience a lot of art. Um, but I think people well, start thinking I think about- it does. I think music is yeah. almost omnipresent. 
yeah, that's what I was going to say. If you take everything from, if you removed every art form from your life, I think you would be very surprised. Like music, no music. That means not in the car, not in the grocery store, not in your home, um, no TV, no movies, no, and just really eliminate all forms of um, artistic work, no representations of man in the world whether it's acting or it's painting or it's whatever, or just, or the music. And it's just, I think it would be just, you, you have to, but the, my point about values is you'd have to, what would my life be like without that? And that helps key yeah. you in. And, and it's more than that, Aaron, it's more than that because the same general principles apply to design that apply to fine art, that it is a pleasure for the human consciousness qua human consciousness. So you'd have to imagine that the objects, your furniture, your house, the um, glasses you drink from, the silverware are all completely undesigned and merely utilitarian without any aesthetic dimension. It would be very depressing, particularly if you've experienced the opposite. Yeah, I want to ask you about that because I have very strong feelings about this and thoughts as well. But it's very common. So this is a, another general question about values and Ayn Rand's attitude toward them. It's common. I don't know how widespread exactly, but it's common and it's known that people tend to think of material values as stuff. Yeah, you're just accumulating stuff. It's in a sense that it's sort of unspiritual or and and, and the desire for material values and one's investment in effect um, into material values is kind of de demeaned or put down as sort of like the materialistic in the sense of which that's a negative mm -hmm. or it's a bad thing as opposed to spiritual. Um, how did she, did she, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but <laughs> she didn't think about that it that way that there that's materialistic I mean, if you yeah the whole a spiritual the dimension to, yeah this the is whole spiritual dimension. Shrugged is, is about is against that the whole of atlas shrugged is about material values are the result of spiritual values and that they help it's the survival of a being who's both an integration of mind, who's an integration, not both those redundant, who's an integration of mind and body. So if you start talking about material values as not values, you've cut man in two, as her hero says in his speech at the end of the novel. You can't sever the material realm from the spiritual realm. And the spiritual here means pertaining to values and consciousness, not supernatural, not religious in any sense, but pertaining to consciousness. So it's matter and consciousness, both exists. You know, she said when she was 16 in Russia, which is where she grew up, someone asked her, are you a materialist who believes everything is matter or a spiritualist who thinks everything is consciousness? And she said, a materialist, of course. And then she said that she went home and she thought about it and she said, why do we have to, to herself, why do we have to choose between them? 
And she became very firmly sold on the mind-body or soul-body integration. So it's a spiritual value. And I have one here. I have an, an Ayn Rand integration here to show you. Okay. I hope this, see this glass? The glass? Uh-huh. This, this was Ayn Rand's. I have four Ayn Rand glasses that are uh, coils of blue-green, her favorite color at the bottom. And this is the glass that we drank iced tea from when I came over to play Scrabble at her place. She used these. these this is a material value that, of course, it's artistic, that embodies a spiritual value. So she always, she believed in what she called the stylized universe, which is that you make everything around you reflect your value choices. And she did that, every, her apartment, everything that she dealt with, insofar as she had the financial means to do so, was stylized according to her value preferences. So let's turn, so one more general thing, and then I wanna to turn to more specific things about Ayn Rand's choices and values and your relationship with her. Um, there are no black and whites. What was her view about that? Because I, she, <laughs> I think many people who have accepted what you said about that fact value issue where values are inherently subjective. And I think that there's this perspective that you can't really look at things in terms of black and white anymore if that's right. And then it also, I think, undercuts people's confidence in their own values because they say, well, I mean, I like it, but it's kind of subjective and they, they don't have the, the real force of conviction, I think, when it comes to their values. Um, and it can lead people to not value their values, if you want to say, uh, put it that way. Like, she, but she definitely had a, a very black and white perspective. And how does that relate to the fact that, you know, values are related to factual issues? Well, yeah, that's what gives rise to blacks and whites is that life is white and death is black. That's the ultimate uh, black and white issues, whether you live or die. She would have said, if I can put words into her mouth, there are no blacks and white. Is that black and white? Maybe you should say, well, it's not black and white, but I think to some extent there are no blacks and whites. Well, is that black and white? Is it black and white that it's only to some extent? So there's no way to even state the position that denies the existence of absolutes. Because whatever comes out of your mouth is meant as an absolute. And if you qualify it, the qualification is meant as an absolute. I have uh, stories about that, but- The closest you could get article. to is like the ancient yeah. skeptics who refused to hold any position, <laughs> even in their own mind. <laughs> but, that, but that just means shutting down cognition and reducing yourself to the perceptual level of an animal. Um, yeah, I think it was Chrysippus, wasn't it, who stopped no. talking altogether? <laughs> no, that was, uh, uh, yeah, Cratylus. Cratylus, Cratylus, yeah. yeah. The cynics were a school, cynic is close to dog in Greek, and they were named yeah. that because they were so convinced that you couldn't know anything 
as a human being that they walked around on all fours and drank water out of mud puddles. <laughs> so I don't know how anecdotal that is from 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 uh, from old uh, old accounts and stories, but certainly the um, uh, this certainly this that kind of attitude will have effects on on one's life. But let me ask you because you I mean you you knew Ayn Rand, um, you met her, you you got to um, kind of witness face to face her attitude, like as a as a human being and. Tell me about like how did you come to know Ayn Rand and what was she like as a person? I mean, in the context of this kind of value approach, what impacted you when you met her? Uh, I first saw her give a lecture at MIT when I was a freshman. Uh, and what she said for the first half of the talk, I didn't I didn't get it at all. But then she got to the statement about free will that I thought was staggeringly important, the most important thing I'd ever heard in my life. And I started paying attention. And then in the question period, she was black and white. For instance, she was asked, what is, this was a topic in the 60s, when, which is when we're talking, what is the objectivist sexual ethics? Now, this was a period when Playboy was just getting big and the sexual revolution was starting because the pill had just been uh, mass marketed. So for the first time, women could have sex with a sort of carefree attitude. And she began her answer by saying, we're very chaste. And then she went on to say that that's because we think sex is, we being objectivists, think that sex is a huge value and is not to be taken lightly. And so promiscuity is inappropriate. Uh, but when she said, we're very chaste, I thought, wow, no one else would say that. That's so black and white, that's so counter. Everybody else would say, if they were religious, they would say uh, sex is okay within the bounds of marriage or something. But anybody else would have said, well, people can't get hung up about sex. You can't be puritanical. This was the educated person's view. Freud has shown us that we're all low sexual desiring beings and let's not play games, let's not rationalize. It's a physical pleasure with no meaning, it's like sport, and it's no big deal. And she, when what I heard when she, we're very chaste is, she takes herself seriously and nobody else did. So that made a big impression on me. But uh, it wasn't, uh, I, I was, went out and read Atlas Shrugged because she quoted from the hero of Atlas Shrugged in her talk, she said, as John Galt says in Atlas Shrugged, and I thought, wow, that takes a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Everybody else would say, as Baudelaire once wrote, as C.I. Lewis once said, and it, or C.S., yeah. there are two of them, uh, as uh, Ezra Pound once wrote, but she quoted from herself. I thought that takes a lot of nerve. So I had to read this book, Atlas Shrugged. And once 
I got more than 60 pages into that, I was hooked. So I reshaped my life to be an objectivist philosopher. And of course, that meant coming to New York, but it, it also meant going to lectures in Boston on her philosophy, which came out of the New York headquarters. And the representative, the one who held that, uh, those lectures, knew Ayn Rand, and she introduced me to her. But it was inevitable that uh, I would eventually get to know her to some extent. The only question was, would she accept me? And eventually she did. Uh, she didn't accept me right away, but eventually I approved myself over time. So I, I knew her very well. What was she like? To quote one of her own uh, statements in one of the plays, like nothing you bastards ever dreamed of. A friend of mine who was at Columbia Law School got to spend a couple of hours with her and he said, she thinks every minute of her life is important. And that's what she radiated, this intensity, this both seriousness and playfulness at times, but a value orientation. She wanted to know. She wanted to discuss ideas. She wanted to hear what you thought and to a dialogue with you and find out if she could improve her own view or improve your view. So she was, uh, she was a dynamo. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been in the presence of anyone with real charisma, but she had charisma on steroids. She, I mean, you felt when you were in her presence that there was some solar flare that had come out. I mean, I, maybe I'm going too far, <laughs> but I just want to say it, it, it was an experience being around her and talking to her. When you, you said that, uh, or, or your friend said that she treats like every moment of her life as, as, as important. That's to, to me, that speaks to a profound self-esteem and and it in the relationship of that to there's something a relationship of that to your value orientation because part of wanting values is wanting values for yourself and wanting you know wanting to be happy wanting to uh, enrich one's life thinking of oneself as deserving of them uh, and so there's a there's a deep connection I think between self esteem. And that value orientation, because I think people less less self esteem, less self confident, less they also tend to be less less ambitious in terms of their personal goals. Less more like it's my life, damn it, you know. And you know, I want it, I deserve it. It's and that connection between there is important. She seemed to have both intensely. Yeah, I don't think you can have self esteem if you have confidence in something that you don't care about. For instance. Um, you know, in your ability and something. I knew a philosopher, no, I knew a philosopher who told me about another philosopher who spent his life on Plotinus, who was a Neoplatonist in about two or 300 AD. Rather obscure, but a transmission belt of 
Platonism into Christianity, so of some importance. And my friend, a philosopher, asked this Plotinus scholar, do you like Plotinus? He said, no. So here's a guy who spent his whole life's work on explaining the thought of somebody he didn't care for. Now, I don't think you can have much self-esteem if you devote yourself dutifully to something that you don't love. You have to, self-esteem is the conviction, she says, of being able to live and worthy of living. And life is value achievement. So if you're able to keep eating and maybe not so worthy, nothing to establish your worth, how can you have real self-esteem? You can't. Yeah. So you're right. I agree. It's a job. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a job. I'm, I'm smart. I can write papers on this kind of thing. And yeah, I could pick Plotinus or I could pick uh, Heraclitus. It doesn't really matter. Right. And there were philosophers. Uh, well, here's an experience I had that's in that direction. I once talked to a flutist that played with the Los Angeles uh, Symphony uh, Philharmonic Orchestra. And she said that most of the people, maybe 90% of the people in the orchestra regarded it as a job. They weren't passionate about the music. They weren't trying to stretch themselves to do better and to interpret it more interestingly. They were just putting in time to get a paycheck. That completely floored me. You would think, you know, a successful musician must love his field, but she yeah. said no. I had the exact same experience I, when I was doing my PhD at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And I met a guy who was on, I think, the board of the orchestra, the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra, he invited me over to his place because uh, they were having a reception. The orchestra members were there and, you know, shrimp on a big thing of ice. And, you know, it was a nice, very nice place. And I started chatting. I'm a passionate about classical music. Uh, and I've read all sorts of like biographies of composers, performers, just, I'm just totally into it. And I've read like 10,000 million liner notes <laughs> from classical music CDs. Mm -hmm. I just sort of, I'm a just sponge about this stuff. And I started talking to them about, uh, we were just chatting about music and, and I was surprised they had the same attitude. It was, they didn't seem to know much about music. They didn't seem to know much about, I mean, they know how to play and they know how to like read music. I don't read music, yeah. I don't even play an instrument but they just had no wider, very little extension between what they were required for their work. And they, they very, the people I talked to were just not passionate about music. And we were talking about I'll recordings of favorite recordings of pieces and they're like, yeah. I don't know, you know, it's just, that just stunned me. Like, how can you, especially in a field like that, but I get it. I mean, it, you could take it, it's a job, I, I can do it. I'm, I'm competent at it, but there's something yeah. about, but don't you want to live? <laughs> exactly. Uh, a former girlfriend's father had come out of World War II and had gotten into the dry cleaning business. I brought him a suit to dry clean and he came back somehow looking better than it had on the rack when I bought it. <laughs> and his shop did not have that dry cleaner's smell. 
And he eventually showed, uh, starting from nothing, he eventually got to sell it for a million dollars. So I once asked him, how much, how come your dry cleaning operation is so much better than every other one I've seen? And he said, I try. Yeah. 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 <laughs> they don't it's that, it's that investment it's that you care and there's some relation to your self-respect and to your self-esteem and that it it because it's a because it's a good job because I did a good job and because I do a good job. And that's that relationship between self-esteem, self-respect, uh, and investment in something. Um that you care because it's you. Absolutely. Uh I so agree. You, good. No, I, I, I'm done with that topic. Yeah. Um, so you, you had said uh, once that, that Ayn Rand lived and breathed applied philosophy, that it wasn't sort yeah. of something you, you go to your office and you do some philosophy or you give a lecture or something, and then you just go back to, you know, living. Um, but that somehow that some kind of a philosophical perspective was always sort of at play or sort of in the background is not the right word, but integrated into the way in which yeah. she faced in the foreground things. with her yeah, yeah. okay yeah uh, I, i'll give you some examples uh one one time i was in her apartment and she was she had cats cats were a big value of hers and uh a cat had knocked over something or scratched up something and the cat was there on the floor and i looked and i said bad cat and she said no good cat who took a bad action <laughs> that, that was the first time i'd heard the distinction that she made between judging the entity the person or the animal and judging an action so it's possible for a good person to take a bad action and one shouldn't be afraid she didn't say this but uh, you know thinking about it some of the fear that people have of moral judgment, some of it, is due to the fact that they think if anything they did was immoral, then they're damned to hell. She didn't have that perspective at all. She wanted everything to be judged because everything that you did was pro-life or anti-life. But it didn't mean if that if you were late for an appointment because you were not paying attention, that that means you're going to objective as hell, which there is none, or you're going to die. So uh, the Christian morality or pseudo morality has made people fear morality when in fact it's just your guide to living. That's what it is. Uh, the other one is a story I don't know firsthand, but I was told that Ayn Rand was in a restroom somewhere at a restaurant or whatever, and they had the stalls that they used to have in the old days where you had to put in a quarter to use the toilet in the restaurant, uh, probably not in the restaurant, in a department building, they would do that. And, uh, a woman was coming out of the stall and tried to hold the door open for Ayn Rand so she wouldn't have wouldn't to have pay, to pay the quarter. Yeah. And she said, reportedly, 
if I were going to sell my soul, do you think I would sell it that cheaply? <laughs> so she took this as that's, like, this yeah. is the, the terms here are that you pay a quarter for it and that's the terms and I'm not gonna try to cheat it. And I, because yeah, most people would think, oh, it's, come on, it's a quarter, it's, it's, it's not a big deal. It's, it's, and you know, this doesn't count in effect. And I better be with everything count. counts. Everything yeah. counts. I once asked her, isn't every choice a moral choice? And she said, yes, because in the objectivist morality, she, this is me filling it in. This is why I said it, and it's obvious. Everything you do either helps you or hurts you. Maybe a little bit, maybe a lot. And you often can't tell. So you can not focus on something that you should have focused on, and it may not have any really big consequences. But sometimes it will. <laughs> It will have really big, because you didn't focus on it, you didn't realize, oh my God, if I paid attention to that, I would be much better off. So uh, again, remember, we're not talking about dying tomorrow. We're talking about being on the road to life, living life to the fullest, living consistently, or mixing in some poison with it. There's never any justification for that. So it's like micro dosing on poison, <laughs> where it's just yeah. there's all little bits of things, small little bits of things that are not on the path to life and the good and to self-esteem and self-respect. And in some way, however small, and she's, I don't want to, I don't want to put my foot on that path at all. And not because there's some sort of, there's a punisher out there somewhere that's going to like you stepped over the line and you're going to get judged and punished, but because it, it, it harms your, your own life and your own ability to pursue values and, and you know, maintain self-respect. I mean, that's like sort of different oh, between that, you said Christianity has made it seem like morality is your enemy because you're always worrying about like, what I, I can't step over the line. I'm going to get judged. It's, it's about avoiding punishment and the fear of punishment versus the prospect of values and happiness and joy and success and life. That's always, should be, I think, in the forefront. And if it's sort of you, if there's something you do that's wrong, it's like the idea is to correct it, not like, oh my God, somebody could judge me. Right. You're going to judge yourself, but it's not about anybody else's judgment. You're going to judge yourself. No one will know. It's know. only in my mind. <laughs> it's yeah, that kind no of, yeah, it's in your mind. It's about me and what importance am I? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wanted to bring up, and you, you, you keyed it in my memory, I wanted to bring up that today is Ayn Rand's birthday, and I have created Rand's Day, which is a special holiday to celebrate her birthday. This is my own creation and project. And on Rand's Day, you give yourself a, pre a present. And on my website, randsday.com, which I urge you to go to. I give a quote from the Fountainhead, which is revealing and what keyed off the memory. Peter Keating, the, one of the villains or non-admirable characters, says too late in his life, why do they say it's easy to do what you want? It's the hardest thing in the world to do what you want, what you really want not some momentary uh, or 
purge or something. And he sold his soul. He, he destroyed himself by not doing what he wanted, but doing what his mother wanted and his boss wanted and other people wanted. So that is a very important theme in objectivism is that you need to do what you really seriously after reflection choose to pursue that you want, that you need to make your life meaningful to you. Don't settle for anything less. And that's a deep point. It's first of all, it's a very, very moving scene in the book because you've, you've watched the arc of this guy's life yeah. and, yeah. and you watch also, um, what that character gives up in that book and it's heart-wrenching actually um but it's a deep point and it's easy to sort of maybe because people often say like just like the character does people say it's easy to do what you want right because that's oh selfishness oh come on you're just telling people to just you know do what you want and the, the way in which they regard that is easy which i think in the end isn't easy but is go with the flow do what you feel like as opposed to Think carefully about what you really want in your life, what you want your life to shape up to be, what you want your character to shape up to be, what kind of life you want to lead, a life you could admire, to look up to, love like crazy. What, what does that look like? What do you want? And you have to really think about that across the course of a life and then actively go pursue it, have the courage to pursue it against uh, often opposition, fear, sometimes lack of confidence, there's, but there's just a lot to do. And he's, it's so hard to do what you really, really want to do. And I, I think that's a really deep point. And because it's, I think, unfortunately, sadly, um, for all sorts of reasons um, that people don't do it, or uh, not people, not everybody, but it, it's, it's, I often feel that it's an uncommon thing to really, really go after what you really want. Um, and to really yes. pursue it okay. and then to reap the rewards. Um, and that's what life is about. I mean, that's where life is um, at its best. And I think I, 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 Ayn Rand certainly understood that. I remember what was there, there was a story. Um, I don't remember whether this was in uh, my 30 years with Ayn Rand, you know, the essay by Dr. Peacock, um, but where she was on the steps of the publisher after publishing Atlas Shrugged and somebody, maybe it was him, I don't remember, asked, was it worth it? Uh, and, and she said, yes, or something like that. I mean, all the struggle that she had to go through. Um, I'm probably getting that anecdote wrong, but it, yeah. You've got the essence right, but it, it's, it's even better because they were looking in the window uh, of a bookstore that was, just put out Atlas Shrugged in the window of the bookstore and she volunteered, it's worth it. So no one asked her was it worth She That was her perspective. It was worth it. It was a lot of struggle and suffering in writing Atlas, particularly Galt's speech, which took her two years, but it was worth it. And after it, she, after it was published, she often picked it up and just read it for sheer pleasure and delight, uh, preening in what she had done and loving it. That's something else that came out in a, I think it was a Phil Donahue episode, you know, when she said, Ayn Rand, you are something. And she says, she says, 
I think so. And, it was, and he started moving on to his next prepared question. And he's like, well, he's like, hang on. Like, that's a hell of a thing to say. Like, what? so you, you're okay with just saying something like that. It's like, and she says, yeah, it's okay. If you've done something and you've really achieved something, it's okay to, um, to, to know it and to be proud of it. And to, in effect, show to other people that you're proud of it. it, it you know, it's sort of, there are things to achieve. And it, there's a, the, part of the reward is I, I'm happy about myself. It doesn't mean you go around as a braggart, but it's sort of like, no, I, I did it. And I'm, I, I thought you think I'm special for it. <laughs> I like that. And also, right. something just people don't say. Well, most people aren't anything. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, she knew who she was. And yet, in, uh, before she established herself in the 30s, when she was still an unknown, even though she published We the Living, which was not a big success because the type was broken after 3,000 copies had sold out because the publisher thought it wouldn't sell, but it would have, as it has since then. Uh, she wrote to Frank Lloyd Wright, and she wrote the most humble, if I can use a word that doesn't apply, most respectful, non-assuming letter to Frank Lloyd Wright asking if he would read some of her, I think it was the, would he read parts of the Fountainhead that she had written, she had just starting, or that she wanted to meet him. Uh, so she was very objective about it. She didn't expect other people to take her on faith she thought she had to demonstrate her value, uh, particularly to someone that she admired, who had proved he was an achiever, like Wright was. Later, incidentally, in life, she became very disillusioned about Wright as a person. She always loved his architecture, but she found that as a person, he was not independent outside of the studio. In his private life, he was a second-hander. Hmm. Let me ask you, let me turn to a she few. Did mean uh, she, she did go to uh, to Italias and, and uh, that whole scene there, and she was not favorably impressed by that. Interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting because she, you know, it's part of the issue of objectivity and partly the issue is people are whole people. They're not just their work, yeah. they're their character and their person, and she could separate the two. Yeah. Uh, Let me ask there was another, I had uh, another story, but it just flitted out of my 78-year-old brain. <laughs> That's okay. I just turned 50, so I'll, I'll, I'll ask you a question. Uh, oh, I know what so it is now. I know it. Can yeah. I slip it in? Slip it in. Uh, it's about the valuing psychology. The pretext for my going to visit her in the last couple of years of her life was to play Scrabble. She liked Scrabble, and I liked Scrabble, and it was Leonard Peikoff who suggested that I arrange to do that with her. And uh, you might wonder, those of you who realize Ayn Rand's incredible genius, what kind of Scrabble player was she? 
Well, she was good, but no great shakes. I mean, nothing, nothing to gasp over. She was on the same level I was. Why is that? Because Scrabble was not a huge value. It was a pleasant, entertaining, relaxing thing to do at the end of the day sometimes. It was a game. So she did not approach it the way she approached the things that were her values. It was a minor value, so she did it and she was good at it. But her whole brain was organized around writing fiction and writing philosophy. I'll give you one final example. Once uh, she was at my apartment looking out at, I lived in Manhattan where she lived at that time. And we were looking out in the evening at other buildings nearby. And she kind of half whispers the lighted squares hanging in space which was a phrase that she had used in one of her novels, The Lighted Windows. She called the lighted squares hanging in space. And she couldn't, you know, that was what was coming up from her subconscious. Now, if you devoted your life to Scrabble, as some people do, you see a sign and you immediately start thinking of anagrams of that. So what your subconscious is organized around is a matter of what your interests, your values, your goals are. And it's mutually reinforcing. It's a virtuous cycle, not a vicious cycle. The more you value something, the more your subconscious gloms on to what's relevant to that. The more your subconscious gloms on to information relevant, the more you can achieve your values. You know, you, I, that's an important point. And you you mentioned, um, you said this once in a lecture you gave. I don't know when I heard this. I heard it on cassette tape. I don't know when. But you said, you know, it's a way of holding that point. You said values are the motor of cognition. And I've always remembered that phrase. And I've always held it. It helps me hold that whole perspective. Is that it's just, you know, why think about anything? Uh, you know, and yeah. it, it has to do with that sort of it's it's what's your interest isn't just like there's the realm of values and then there's the realm of cognition and there's a how do they ever meet? You know, it's it's one fuels the other. Um, and it's, I think they're yeah. so connected that I would put the old I, not her, would put the alternative of life or death as a hierarchical point that comes before epistemology. Because I don't think that a being that had no values, no goals, could actually pursue any cognitive activity. It wouldn't know anything. It wouldn't take in anything. I think that consciousness is to guide action. Action is to get things to use for your life, for your survival. So if you didn't have that, I don't think you'd care what you saw or you wouldn't think about. I, mean, I don't mean you, I mean a being, an imaginary being. So we have a few minutes left uh, before the sort of closing remarks and so on. Can you tell me, this is about Ayn Rand's values, value orientation. Can you tell me about some of her favorites, some of the things that she, she was really 
uh, passionate about some of the things that she loved, whether, however, they're grand scale or they're smaller scale. Um, yeah. You know, from what you know about well, her. Well, as I said, is she had design choices. She, she loved uh, modern furniture, modern architecture. Like in Frank Lloyd Wright, she loved the color blue green. And she, um, th those are the kind of minor but personal uh, values. And uh, she loved cats. They were a major value. She said, one can either have cats or have unscratched furniture. I choose to have cats. And uh, she loved her tiddlywinks music, which was a special kind of turn of the century from uh, the 1800s to the 1900s, <laughs> that century. Uh, uh, gay kind of music. Scott Joplin is something that would qualify, I believe, in that people are familiar with. Um, but she uh, loved her husband so much that when he died, she didn't want to do anything. She, the great agent and value pursuer and so forth, that's why I went to play Scrabble with her because she wasn't doing anything. She was, she said she lost her top value and she found it hard to find a reason to go on. Then she discovered a certain actor while watching TV that embodied her style, her attitude, her idea of what a man should be. And she said it was like the sun came out again. She sprung into action. She started writing a teleplay a uh, screenplay for TV of Atlas Shrugged. She decided to produce it herself and to get this actor to play the role of Francisco. She said it was particularly when she connected in her mind this actor with the role of Francisco that life returned to her. Uh, if not to keep it a mystery, his name is Hans Gudegast but he changed that. And you may know him as Eric Braden, who's on a, a soap opera, The Young and the Restless, I think it is. And he plays a villain on that. And he's no longer, you know, obviously at this age, uh, the dashing figure that he was in the series that we watched together weekly, or sometimes it was on more than weekly, The Rat Patrol which is a pretty good series. Oh yeah, I, I remember that as a kid. My dad and I They're used to watch that, story. sitting in the basement on the couch. <laughs> the Rat Patrol, I forgot about that. The Rat Patrol, and she had in effect a crush on uh, Hans Gudekast, <laughs> who played Captain Hans Dietrich, the enemy, the German Wehrmacht, not Nazi. She couldn't have <laughs> adopted him as a uh, character in any sense. But it was in the German army, and he always got defeated by the American good guys, which is proper. But he had that Francisco-ish Elan, uh, Panache, uh, mm -hmm. that almost no one has. So I recommend that to your audience. That's great. I, I actually didn't know about that. Uh, and who can't fall in love with, who can't have a crush on Francisco? 
but that's interesting too because she she what seemed to inspire her is always like looking up finding something yes. that's admirable finding something that's i mean she thought of herself as a man worshiper and not mean male worshiper but it's just sort of like to look up to the to the highest and and that's what i mean that's why i want to be a writer right she, she wants to like she finds these heroic characters and she's like i want to write about these people i want to live in that atmosphere i want to create that uh that world and project that um the highest possible and to just devote oneself to the highest possible both in oneself and in one's art that's exactly it that's exactly her motor was to create in her writing the ideal man which she hoped to find in reality uh, and she found it in frank o'connor her husband who um you may realize she denied this to me but i think it's true nonetheless frank o'connor francisco de Anconia. Coincidence? I don't think so. She said she did not, I do not engage in private symbolism, she said. Okay, but maybe I didn't say this to her. Maybe the reason you like the sound of that name is that it's close to Frank's name. <laughs> Some kind of subconscious uh, thing. Yeah. Although she had a hero named Francesco before she ever uh, met Frank. It was Italian, it was Francesco, but Francesco right. is the Spanish version of it. Okay, well, uh, Harry, I want to thank you for spending the time with us and uh, sharing these things with it. I always love to hear. I've heard some of the, your stories and uh, many I haven't, and so it's always a, it's always a pleasure. Uh, to talk about these things. I think, you know, it's kind of a birthday episode and it's kind of, in a way, it talks about some things that are lighter, um, but it's such a deep and heavy, weighty issue, the issue of your life and the issue of valuing and filling your life with values that it's, it's at the same time, I think, a kind of light and joyous and also deep and important uh, in life and that those two shouldn't be, those two aspects of it shouldn't be sundered. And I think, I hope we've conveyed some of that today. So I want to thank uh, our super chat, uh, super chatters, <laughs> if I can coin a word, uh, for your uh, kind donations uh, to the program. Uh, I wanted to share some resources uh, if you're interested in a bit more about Ayn Rand as a person and what it was like to know her. So there's uh, Dr. Leonard Peikoff's essay, My 30 Years with Ayn Rand. Uh, and also there's a book of recollections by Charles and Marianne Souris called Facets of Ayn Rand. Um, basically like interview material from two people who knew Ayn Rand closely and uh, were her friends. Uh, I want to say a few things about uh, next week's show, next week's episode of New, New Idea Live. So we've got Alon Journo and Sam Weaver. They're going to be discussing Natalie Wexler's book. It's called The Knowledge Gap. Uh, and the book makes the case that many American schools have abandoned the responsibility of teaching substantive content. So they're going to be discussing some elements from that book. Uh, so as always, please send us your questions for future Q&A episodes, so we do take a look at those. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the channel on YouTube and click the bell to get notifications when we go live or post new recordings. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook, uh, please do the same. Uh, consider clicking like or sharing or leaving a comment. It helps us sort of grow the channel. 
Uh, if you have questions or comments about today's episode, you can always email us at newideal at einrand.org. We read all of your emails and we reply to many of them. Uh, so send us what you've got. Um, again, so thank you very much, Harry. Uh, I appreciate that. Your time. Thank all you. Right. Bye bye, everyone. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.